You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender-questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitated support meetings for families and individuals who've been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. Brett Alderman is a writer and life coach who works with gender-questioning teens and their parents. He received his PhD in depth psychology from the Pacifica Graduate Institute in 2012. His book, Symptom, Symbol, and the Other of Language, a Jungian interpretation of the linguistic turn, is an attempt to understand postmodernism and specifically its intense preoccupation with language from the perspective informed by the work of Carl Jung. This work, in turn, has led him to an interest in queer theory and its relationship to earlier first-generation postmodernist thinkers. Brett's insights into postmodernism and post-structuralist thinking provides a really rich platform for us today, where we try to get a grip with gender ideology. In this fascinating conversation, he explains this linguistic turn and other Jungian concepts like ideological possessions and the archetypes. Perhaps most importantly, Brett tells us why a statement can be literally false and yet remain metaphorically true, and how we can best respond when this is happening. Here's our conversation with Brett Alderman. Welcome to the show, Brett. We're really glad to have you here. I was delighted to be invited. I am going to be among a list of really, really impressive guests, which is feels great. (laughs) You also are an impressive guest. So um, there is a lot that we wanted to cover with you today, but maybe we could start with you sharing a little bit about your book. It's called Symptom, Symbol, and the Other of Language. And essentially, this is a book about postmodernism and poststructuralism and how that interacts with uh, a lot of theorists that have come up, I believe, from, from the 90s on. Is that correct? I would say even before that, the late 60s on. Okay. Tell us about it. So I was looking at something that's called the linguistic turn, which broadly speaking is a movement in 20th century philosophy and social sciences in which people really start to look at language in a new way um, and start to try to just kind of dissect language in an attempt to answer certain philosophical questions. But um, one of the things that really happened in that movement is people started to kind of shift their understanding on, on what language does and how it works. Before the linguistic turn, we had this idea that language was an attempt to represent something that was already there. So, you know, I I see the light coming through the window and I say the words, I see the light coming through the window. And it's an attempt to present again, some original perception that I've had. Then the linguistic turn comes around and it kind of flips that whole script on its head and says, actually, seems like it's the language that comes first and then the perception. So it seems to be that language is actually constructing what you think is actually there to begin with. This becomes really, really important later on when we start thinking about this in terms of gender and queer theory, which was very, very influenced by deconstruction, post-structuralism, and the linguistic turn more broadly. Mm -hmm. I think language always has an implication. Well, not always. Let me say certain types of language it holds an implication within it, right? So, I mean, we could get really uh, granular here, but of course, adjectives are meant to convey almost an opinion sometimes. Okay. Sometimes they're objective, but sometimes they're not. So where do you think they went wrong because I could see how the way we talk about something and describe it can impact our perceptions of it. Like that seems true, but it's gotten tipped into an area that is so esoteric that is, I think, not helpful anymore. Where do you think that line is? Um, I think 
this is a good moment to bring in an idea of Jung's, which is the nothing but attitude. And it's this sort of reductive attitude that wants to take one element or one key idea and reduce everything else to that one idea. So, for example, in regards as regards language and this idea of construction. Now, it's one thing to acknowledge what you just acknowledged, that, yeah, language does have its say, and it does, to a degree, determine what we're perceiving. Um, I think that's that, to me, seems like a pretty sound observation. But I think where things go wrong is when we say it's nothing but that. It's purely the language that's determin- determining the perception. The perception has no say. Um, the the phenomena itself has no say. Um, nature or objectivity or anything that you might consider to be other than construction is just sort of swept under the rug. So I mean, that's that's really it. Is there an example that you can use to kind of ground us? Like, what? How how might a theorist? imply that language is the only thing constructing perception and reality. What's an example that like a famous postmodernist or post-constructionist would have used? Well, I'm tempted to go straight to the heart of the matter and start talking about gender and the gender binary. Um, You know, uh, there's this idea that the, the male female binary is just that, just a construct, just this sort of, um, some, some legacy granted us by, you know, cis heteronormative patriarchy or what have you. Um, so there's no sense in which actually that binary male, female is a result of this, this thing that all of us can perceive this basic fact that human beings basically come in two primary categories. There's male and there's female. We can all see it. We've been using these distinctions for years because it's something not only that the science of biology has taught us, but something that we just perceive every day. But when when the conception is understood to precede the perception, then, you know, the perception gets swept under the rug. Um, and it's actually the, the the binary that that's believed to be just just an arbitrary something that we've been granted by this, um, by history. So do you see that um, this gender um, phenomenon that we, we have now is very much kind of a reflection on this post-structuralism, post-modernist thinking? Like, which came first, I'm wondering? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, obviously, like queer theory and gender identity theory, as we know it, would be impossible without deconstruction and post-structuralism and the particular understanding of language that it inaugurated. However, you know, uh, as much as I, I'm tempted to say that it, you know, the uh, gender identity theory it, it has arisen because of that. I mean. Really, there's got to be something even before that. I mean, what was going on in the culture? What we, I think, we were already becoming somewhat disembodied in a for the linguistic turn and all these new ideas to even take root. Um, so those ideas are symptomatic of you know something else happening in the broader psyche. I hope that answered your question. Yeah, that mm-hmm. yeah, does. It's like we we were kind of maybe with technology. And leaving behind, I'm getting a bit <laughs> loquacious now, but leaving behind the land that we, we've become more and more dis, disconnected with the body, with nature, uh, and more just literally we are minds. We're just all about what's going on inside our brains and no, nothing else. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And one of the metaphors that I used in, in my book to describe this is that of the astronaut. It's like we're becoming astronauts oh. and we're floating outside the Earth and we see the Earth down there. And the Earth itself almost seems like just one random planet floating in space and almost like we could mm. leave it behind entirely. And we've kind of lost the idea that actually... Um, 
that's where we come from. And we couldn't even be looking at the earth from space if it weren't for the fact that we started and the earth itself. So, you know, it's, it's very disembodied. And, um, you know, I think that image of being outside the earth is also a great image for talking about being distanced from nature. Um, and nature is one of those ideas that um, deconstruction and queer theory also really like to glom onto I mean, and say, there is no nature. There is no nature. We have to denaturalize certain concepts. There are certain concepts that we take, we take for granted. And every time something like queer theory sees that, it says, okay, we've got to show that actually that's not just a natural thing to think or believe that's culturally constructed. It's inherited. Um, and it's often thought of as being inherited, um, by way of a history of oppression and, you know, I see you nodding your head. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm thinking about, um, like what happens at least for a lot of gender questioning kids and Parents find this really confusing because, of course, the, the parents' story is like, my kid has never, ever questioned their gender. They were mm -hmm. very gender typical. And even mm -hmm. if they were somewhat gender nonconforming, they were never distressed. They found a comfortable way to just be themselves. And so when kids come to the parents with these new ideas, parents are very, very confused. And what I end up discovering through working with young people is that what happens first is that the kid, you know, usually the trajectory is like they get a cell phone, okay, for the first time around 11 or 12. And they stumble into these kind of postmodern beliefs around gender. And the kid thinks, oh my God, I was sheltered from all this knowledge, yeah. quote unquote, yeah. <laughs> about how the world really works. Uh -huh. And I discovered through this education that actually all of the gender roles that I've been participating in were up imposed onto me right. by this heteronormative society. And like I've been slowly geared or, or kind of coerced into being this cis heteronormative person, but really. I now can see my eyes have been opened. I'm enlightened and I see through yeah. and it's almost conspiratorial in so far as like the belief is that everything in your world is pushing you towards cis heteronormativity. But really, if you had the true blank slateness of your nature, you could have been a million things and you could right. have done a million things. So then parents are like, um, I, I don't get it. You've never been gender nonconforming. And the kid has an answer for that. It's like, well, I wasn't allowed to be because of our society or whatever. So it just, I'm thinking about how this plays out in the, the mind of a young person who's very intelligent and cerebral, but maybe not maturationally sophisticated. And so they, they don't know how to tease apart this stuff. It's like this eye-opening belief system supposedly to the child that doesn't actually have a lot of grounding in like reality. And it also takes for granted how malleable we are like ironically, because they're saying we've all been molded to be a certain way, which is heteronormative, but actually these young people are so malleable to this entire belief system. It's a really powerful narrative. It's sort of enticing, um, you know, for me to think that I've been, sort of duped my whole life and um, oppressed. And then all of a sudden I have this way of thinking of things that allows me to, um, you know, move beyond that. It sets up sort of a heroic narrative and a, and a heroic sort of, um, you know, res resistance against the, you know, the evil um, uh, Beelzebub or, or <laughs> demonic figure of you know, this cis heteronormative uh, patriarchal culture, um, and that's you know we all need that. This is what I keep coming back to. We need those sorts of stories. For me, those are exactly the type of stories that are called archetypal, and they keep coming up millennia after millennia. We keep seeing what are essentially really similar narratives. So I don't want to like give up on those narratives. What I want to do is to just highlight them, see that they're in play and try to tease apart, like, 
uh, how are they in play? And is this real in the same sense that we think they're real? Or are they metaphors that are kind of playing themselves out that actually represent something completely different? I mean, let's really tease apart these these narratives and see what's actually going on there. Uh, there's something in, in the adolescent development Like there's something about being a teen where you're supposed to feel as though now you're entering the world of adult knowledge and the innocence of childhood is behind you. And you touched on kind of initiation rites and that important story of um, kind of the death of the child in order to be reborn as an adult. And that initiation into like the difficult world of adult knowledge and adult ideas is part of that too, right? It's a huge part of it. I see a lot of death rebirth motif running throughout the whole discourse on what it is, what it means to be transgender. I mean, you've got the idea of a dead name, right? People are always taking these new names. Look at that basic practice has been around for centuries. This is commonplace in many cultures. You know, a boy reaches... 12 years old, he goes through some excruciatingly painful initiation ceremony. He's given a new name and everyone around it is told, don't use the old name. This is a new person. Something similar happens with women too. So that says to me that this is part of a necessary process. And also, which I think is important for therapists and anyone who works with transgender youth to understand, okay, there's something going on here that actually does need to happen, but it might need to be given a different framework, a different understanding. Um, it is, there, there is a sense in which the old person's dying and a new person is, is coming into being. Um, but you know, there, there's, there's a lot to tease apart in, in that question of, well, in what sense, in what sense is this a new person? We, we've lost so much and we knew it at the time. We knew we, we were losing a lot when we were losing all the ceremonies, you know, the, the, the just from religion. Now that we're living in this post-religious age and all those rites that were thousands of years old and had so much depth and power to them. And we've lost them. And we knew so many commentators commented on what will happen. You know, how, how will we function without it? And it, it seems to have come to pass that, no, the, the children needed some sort of recognition of going. For example, I'm Irish Catholic. At seven, you had your com- for communion. And that was moving from baby, you know, young child to middle child. And then at 12, you had your confirmation. These were huge events up until about 20 years ago. They were massive, like absolutely massive in every Irish Catholic child's life. And suddenly they were gone. And we have filled that gap vacuum, it feels. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, I think of here in the United States for, for girls, uh, you know, a quinceañera for Latinas. Or, you know, we have bar mitzvahs, too, um, for, for Jewish people, Jewish boys. But, um, you know, I think a lot of the symbolic resonance and importance of even those ceremonies has been really lost you know it's kind of like when christians put up a christmas tree we don't really think of it symbolically it's kind of lost any meaning it's just sort of perfunctory thing you do and it's um, it's money it's consumerism there's a lot of like nowadays they still have the 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 communion and the confirmation but all the serious gravity all the feeling of oh i remember making my communion and we had to have a first confession first and and it was so serious. I was so schooled for my confession. And then, you know, it was like you were achieving it. You know what I mean? And then you reached it. Yeah, and then the same yeah. for the confirmation. Like, you, it was serious. It was a challenge that you were going to do. And now it's just a few quid and you're going to have a party in a bouncy castle. It's, it's nothing. It's a consumerist kind of shallow, vacuous affair. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's lost its, its significance. And I mean, I've noticed, Stella, you and I keep coming back to this, like, it sounds so dark in a way, but this need to suffer to kind of cross the threshold from one life stage to the other. And there is this kind of beautiful, glorious suffering that angsty teenagers experience, you know, and I remember 
watching this show, My So-Called Life, when I was a teenager. And it was a show about a bunch of like depressed teenagers, but I was so enamored by it. And I, I think about um, this move from innocence to like the, the dark truth of the world. And, and I think for sometimes, uh, sometimes it seems to a young person like transition is going to be that suffering and then they're going to emerge on the other oh, side yeah. transformed. Sure. And then there's, there's also the detransitioners who they were kind of what they describe in hindsight is I was living in a fantasy world. It was a childlike fantasy that I would go through this process that it would solve all my problems. And it's actually the detransition that becomes the initiatory process of like, now I have been really schooled in the real way things work. For example, the, the fact that sometimes the medical industry takes advantage of people or isn't as safe as it proclaims to be. And like all of these dark, really ugly truths about the world, like your trust in how smooth everything will be disappears. So it's interesting how like initiation is showing up at so many different parts of that process. Right. Right. You know, that's, I guess that's why I want to continue to bring shed more light on that, that fact. Um, Cause it's going to show up, you know, the question is whether or not you're going to be consciously initiated or if you're just going to be kind of dragged along in the process when did you first notice that uh, that gender had kind of arrived in 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 a post structuralist way, or were you on it anyway? Well, you know, that, that's a really good question because you know, in my in my first book, I actually cite Judith Butler, and this is before I really know who Judith Butler is, and I kind of cite mm-hmm. her to cite her to uh, you know put forth my own argument. And then later on, I realized, oh, wow, she knows who she is. Okay, well, this is interesting. That's really um, funny. And it, it didn't actually lessen my argument. In fact, it might have shown that I am willing to cite people that um, I don't agree with on everything. But she had some interesting insights into Michel Foucault that I thought were spot on, you know. Mm. But I think it was it was within the last few years. I mean, I, I remember being at, you know, different events and hearing people use the term gender assigned at birth and as soon as i heard heard assigned i thought okay there it is they're switching from discovered or observed to assigned that's the basic switch that you know deconstruction and post-structuralism make in its most simplest form and then i think like for a lot of people it was with the with the pandemic and, and like being on twitter a lot more and then just seeing that this the that I, I began to see gender as being sort of the locus of a huge cultural complex that we're trying to wrestle with and figure out. It seemed like kind of gender seems to be like the epicenter of some broader psychological cultural complex that we're trying to work through. And uh, it ain't easy, apparently. <laughs> wow. You, you mentioned, um, as we were kind of discussing the, the episode, something that could be literally false and metaphorically true. Right. Can you flush that out a little bit? What do you mean by that? Well, you know, in the context of gender, if I were to tell you two right now that I'm a woman, I mean, that's a statement that's literally false. Um, and all of us know this. But... There, that, that could be metaphorically true in the sense that, you know, what do I mean if I, if I say I'm a woman? Do I mean that I have certain qualities that I associate with the word woman? Um, you know, the statement I am a woman is false at the level of what the word woman denotes. But we have all these connotations that sort of surround the word woman. You know, some people might think of woman and they might hear or think something like, Oh, um, gentle, intuitive, emotional, um, delicate, um, you know, things like that. I'm not saying that these are the right associations, Mm -hmm. but people have those associations. Mm -hmm. And so if I feel that I have all those qualities too, it might express itself in the idea that, oh, well, I'm a woman. 
Mm. Uh, so there you can see the kind of the confusion and conflation between both the literal meaning and the metaphorical meaning, and also what the word means, the word woman means at the level of denotation and connotation, which, and all of this are, they are like binaries that queer theory and deconstruction like to pull apart. They like, and, and not only pull them apart, but change what comes first. Um, mm. so that they're always, so, I mean, Judith Butler does this um, a lot in, for example, her, her book, Bodies That Matter, where she actually puts forth the idea that, well, actually it's gender that comes first, and then sex is kind of result, a result of gender. Whereas most people think, well, that's absolutely utterly impossible. Well, because it is, but, you know, usually we think of, well, there's this thing called biological sex, and then gender is sort of this like cultural elaboration of it. It's this kind of set of, you know, ideas and practices that, you know, that, that we associate with women, but it's sort of, you know, it's, it's a cultural thing that comes after the fact of this biological fact of sex. Right. But, you know, Butler switches that. She puts the cart before the horse, if you want to put it that way. You, you know what? I'm really glad you're saying all this because really up until this conversation and gender assigned at birth and phrases like that, I had a more paranoid or conspiratorial kind of view of where those phrases came from as if, you know, people were, pu- you know, pushing them in because they had an end game at mind in, in mind, which was basically t- everybody should transition or certainly it, a very strong push, not everybody, you know what I mean? But the, that's where it was coming from. But now that you're speaking, I'm realizing, which I should have known a long time ago, was actually, no, these are people who've wrapped themselves up in all sorts of thoughts around deconstructionism, queer theory. And they've, they've, they're just playing really with words and thoughts and frankly, honestly, the more I read about queer theory, I think, how did they move into surgery? How did they move? How did they get into a physical thing when it's so based in language? Queer theory just seems so not where the kind of the hormonal interventions, the surgical interventions. I'm so surprised it ended up there, if you follow me. Um, but I'm really glad you raised all that. Yeah, I, I'm... I'm surprised too. Um, I'm surprised too, but, and I'm, I'm like in the process of trying to think that one through, but, you know, you know, Judith Butler has this book bodies that matter where she really Mm -hmm. tries to focus on this idea of matter and what it is. Um, And she has this really clever way of describing how we, we used to think of matter as this sort of, you know, having this sort of like ontic reality was just something that was there. And she's, she comes in and says, well, actually, no, it's so, it's so utterly entwined with language itself that we can't say what comes first. And so it's almost just in that confusion and conflation that she makes this sort of medicalization possible, the the literalization of metaphor the idea that that it's as if the physical body becomes like a like a sign, like like it, it becomes reduced to semiotics itself. Wow. So that my body has to communicate to you who I am. It's it's it, the body is language itself. Um, you know, <laughs> if I have breasts, that's signifying something to you. That's right, and and. When you listen to, for example, the the kind of debates around like trans women in sports, for example, the advocates for trans women's inclusion, they often they start to atomize humans into these characteristics. So like there's maleness is the presence of more body hair and the lack of uh, breasts or something. And so rather than saying, oh, well, those all happen to be characteristics of male bodied people, they flip it around and they take the characteristics first. And then they say those indicate masculinity. 
And so then when you're talking about this with the hormones and surgery, then we all become like a Mr. Potato Head where you literally can just impose those characteristics onto any body, literally body. And that becomes a body that signals masculinity or signals femininity. And that's all that matters because there was never an essential or kind of like um, solidifying original state of maleness and female in this. It was always just the characteristics apparently. And, and it's really scary to see how this logic is playing out in terms of things like designer genders, you know, and, and, you know, you go onto some websites where they're doing these surgeries where, you know, a person comes in and and says, I want to be, you know, neither male nor female. I want to, you know, have a little bit of both, or I want to completely nullify it all, which I mean, says so much what that person is suffering through that they want to nullify something that's so essential to their being. Um, frightening. It really is. Oh, it's so dark. It reminds me really of my, my what my dad used to say about people, certain people, not me, uh, that they were, they're so clever, they're stupid. And it's like, it, it feels like it's, they've wrapped themselves, <laughs> they've wrapped themselves into thought and thought and thought, and they've left behind any level of sense. How does all of this apply to animals? You know, how does all of this apply to animals? How does any of this sort of theory apply to animals? I mean, it it doesn't really. I mean, it, but the theorists, the Judah Butlers, what do they think? Do do they just say this is purely the human experience? Leaves behind the fact that we're bodies at all, really, nearly that we're not animals and we're we're all in our mind. Is, is that it? Or... You, you know, I mean, that's a good question. I I, I don't know. Um, to be honest, I haven't I haven't read. Um, yeah, queer theory imagine. that addresses the question <laughs> of, of animals, but I think it's always, and maybe that's because that's what they can't address, and the fact that you know animals who are sexually dimorphic also um, exhibit differences in behavior, which might be analogous to different genders. They act differently. It's not just an anatomical difference; it's a behavioral difference. Um, which I think is a lot of what gender is trying to get at. There are just behavioral, natural differences that, granted, they have a particular cultural manifestation. They're not showing up in the same way all the time in all cultures. But even there, we can see certain similarities. You know, it's not completely arbitrary, no matter what people would like to say. We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high-quality content for this show. And we're grateful to Rhyme and Genspect for supporting us. Rhyme, or Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics, is a non-profit organization dedicated to improving long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. And Genspect is an international alliance of parents and professional groups whose aim is to advocate for parents of gender-questioning children and young people. If you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts and special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Now back to the show. I'd, I'd like to take a stab at your question there, Stella, because I've asked this question or questions along these lines to, to clients or to people who are really wrapped up with this. And I've thought about it because I, I used to think, well, this is the key. If you can just kind of demonstrate that animals don't have to deal with these things and you remind people that we're mammals, then all of this will be a lot easier. But that's, of course, not the way it works. (laughs) But I I think what people might say is, but we have culture, unlike animals, where we have a set of rules and expectations and rituals and traditions which dictate how male assigned people and female assigned people are molded to live. And so if we could free ourselves, so this is, I think, where these constructionists might agree with like a certain type of feminist perspective too, right? Like we're all blank slates, actually. And if we didn't have culture, and if we can rearrange culture, then this doesn't really become a problem anymore. So I think what you're saying, Brett, is maybe your perspective, and I would say my perspective is 
the cultural norms that we have are at least in part influenced by biological truths, not completely, but at least in part. And so we can't really separate the nature question from the environment question, I think. Right. Absolutely. And as you're saying that, I'm reminded of one of the mythic figures that I use to describe what what you just articulated. I talk a lot about Prometheus. Now, Prometheus is the the Greek titan who, you know, steals fire from the gods, gives it to humanity so that humanity can create culture and liberate itself from being uh, just another animal. So there's this idea that Prometheus grants humans the ability of self-determination, liberates, we, we, we liberate ourselves from nature, and we also liberate ourselves from the gods, sort of the, those tyrannical figures. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of Prometheanism, I think, in kind of the gender fantasy. And Prometheus is, by the way, the kind of the patron saint of technology, because he's supposedly who's given it to us. Huh. And, you know, what is... What is medicalization in transgenderism, if not a Promethean fantasy that we can simply create ourselves in whatever image we want, that, you know, that we are, in fact, um, the gods who get to determine everything. And, you know, Prometheus has a really gruesome fate. He gets tied to a rock and has an eagle eat out his liver for, for several millennia. He's just you know, perpetual suffering for the hubris of thinking that, um, you know, he can defy oh my God. both nature and the gods. And I'm putting the gods in scare quotes so that people know I'm not like putting forth a theology here. And yet this feels like a very good argument that this gender ideology is religious because it feels like it, 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 it centers the human as this special being a special being who can do all sorts of things that animals can't do and that can do all sorts of kind of changes that animals can't do because we're special, we are sacred, we are human. That, that seems to be the central premise. Yeah. Here. I, I, I think you're, you're spot on. I, I'm trying lately to, to not say religious, but say um, it's like a religious fundamentalism because, mm. I don't know, for me particularly, I want to kind of differentiate those two because I think there are a lot of... Um, religious people who gain a lot from religion. And I think there's something in the religious ethos and in the stories that we need to hold on to. It's, it's when it becomes kind of a fundamentalism or a dogma that's unshakable. Um, And I, gosh, I mean, isn't that what a lot of us are seeing? I mean, it's, it's not just that the ideas in a lot of gender identity theory are things that we don't agree with. It's that when we disagree, Oh my gosh, the blowback! Mm-hmm. Um, it's know, like Prometheus. It's, it's like it's it's something that's become indisputable, absolutely indisputable. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Have you thought about why? I know it's a dogma, and you know people don't like um, her- heretics. But have you have you any kind of post structuralist theory about why the 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 pushback on anybody who doesn't believe is so intense? I like, you know, I have my own theories, but do you have any in, in, within your kind of field? Well, you know, Jung, he talked a lot about ideological possession. And for him, ideological possession was basically, it was something like the modern form of religious possession. So he looked at kind of the language of religion and, and how, you know, people in the past would talk about someone being possessed by the devil. Um, and they would need to, you know, have pre- um, you know, have an exorcism, or they'd say that someone was possessed of the Holy Ghost. And and there was a lot of, you know, talk about just, you know, there being these certain spirits that could inhabit us and make us act in particular ways, right? And so he kind of looked at that language, then he looked at the world around him. Keep in mind, he was he, you know, lived through the 1940s and World War II, and he was a German-speaking Swiss man. And so he saw the insanity uh, that, you know, the German-speaking world was going through and saw Nazism, saw communism. 
and saw, in effect, kind of the same sort of structures. Like, okay, now before we were being possessed by quote unquote gods, now we're being possessed by ideologies, but it's essentially the same, it's the same thing. The gods have changed their names, but now they've they've become ideas. So um so that's that I mean there's one aspect. And there you know, I, I've kind of focused on like three different things that for me seem really relevant when you when you deify an idea, when I, a particular idea becomes um you know your focus and your fascination. One is that the idea becomes invested with a, a numinous emotion. Now, numinous was a word that Jung got from Rudolf Otto, who was a historian of religion. And Otto um, coined that term to speak of these particular emotions that are often associated with religious experiences. They can be positive or negative. They can be bliss, ecstasy, excitement, but they can also be horror, shame, you know, panic. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times the ideas, they get invested with this sort of supercharged emotion, right? Another thing that seems to characterize ideological possession is this um, nothing but attitude, um, which I kind of briefly alluded to before. That is to say that everything gets reduced to this one idea. So it can be, it can be gender, you know, it can be race, it can be heteronormativity, but somehow there's this reigning principle that is used to explain everything, right? It's kind of like, um, and it becomes kind of like what a lot of, how a lot of people might define God as being everywhere yet nowhere in particular. Now that's, that's a common way of understanding the Godhead or God in many different traditions, Right. So when you have like this central idea that you're sort of obsessed with, it, it kind of functions in the same way. You know, we've all met these people who they, they're always coming back to one thing. You know, maybe for Freud, it was like, it's all about sex all the time, 24-7. And for Ibram X. Kendi, it's all about race all the time. There's no other way of explaining any inequity whatsoever. Or for Judith Butler, it might be, you know, heteronormativity, which is also used to explain anything or everything all the time. And it's also something you can't quite point to it. You know, it's not like an object sitting on your table and you can say that's heteronormativity right there. It's kind of, it's diffuse. We can see evidence of it, but we can't really say where it's at. It's so it, it, it's hard to pin down. Right. Yeah. I, I think about, I mean, I, I used to be much more persuaded by a lot of a certain type of radical feminist uh, views. And I remember watching a feminist named Gail Dines, who's done some, I think, really important work around the impact of pornography. So I, I still agree with a lot of her views. But I remember her talking about either the patriarchy or sexism or something. And she said, we are so inundated with it. It's invisible. It's like the air we breathe. And at the time when I was really imbibing these views, I did develop a kind of paranoia, I have to say, about this invisible sexism or patriarchy that could be around every corner and actually is around every single corner, every interaction. You can barely tell when it's happening. It's like the air you breathe. And I've heard you talk about even how certain ideas around, quote, anti-racism are like that, that racism is everywhere all the time. And you can barely even register that it's happening because we're so inundated with it. So that's a, so much like this omnipotence. Like I grew up in um, a Coptic Orthodox family and I, I always got in trouble in Sunday school for asking these really difficult questions. And I was a little bit of a contrarian, but I remember when I was taught that God is everywhere mm -hmm. and can see you all the time. It was terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> Like we get no privacy ever. God's just yeah. watching all the time. And like he's, he's not a comforting feeling. He has counted every grain of sand. It's like every grain of sand, every grain of sand. What the heck? Every hair on your head yeah. or whatever. Like, yeah. It's yeah. The concept. And that he was looking at me while he was looking at Sasha and he was looking at people thousands of years ago and he's looking at people in the future. 
it's mind-bending and it's incredibly similar. Yes. That it's 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 it makes you paranoid. Yeah. It, yeah, it makes you special as well though. Right. I'm wondering, is there is there a third thing during this <laughs> ideological possession? Because we talked about the numinous emotion and the nothing but attitude. Is there a third or did we wrap up all three? No. Um but we've kind of already talked a little bit about the third. That's the literalization of, of metaphor um, okay, or the confusion yeah. of like metaphorical and literal understandings. Um, wow. Which, you know, again, I think is so important when thinking about, about gender. Um, you know, when I'm speaking with a tr- trans identified person, especially a young person, I don't want to come at them with this, this, um, just with the acknowledgement that what they're saying is literally false. Um, you know, th- that might be a completely appropriate attitude in the political context when we're talking about legislation. But I think when you're working with someone and trying to, you know, help them understand themselves, it's really good to have that understanding of, of the metaphorical significance of certain statements, which is super important. And so I, I do like to say, be able to say, okay, well, in what sense are you a woman? What does that mean to you? And, and really take it seriously um, because it gets, yeah. it gets people thinking and, and really thinking through their own, their own um, personalities and their own dynamics. And it gets it beyond dogma. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that I, that I haven't mentioned is, you know, we have the, we already spoke about like, you know, the deification of a particular idea, but that comes with um, the fact that there's often no countervailing principle to that idea. So it's like, um, so for example, in social construction, you know, people are talking about how everything is just constructed, right? Social, I mean, and there's some truth to that, but the problem, and there's, so that that's not, that's not the problem. The problem is that Sometimes the countervailing principle of a of a biological reality is absent, or a countervailing principle of you know mm. an objective reality, or something that that will allow us to say, well, social construction that's an element of a really complex situation, and that's what we're talking about when we talk about ideological possession. We're talking about a complex, and you know how do you mm-hmm. work with a complex? Well. You continue to look at its complexity. You see it from multiple perspectives. You kind of suss out the ideas. You you um, you address it not in a simplistic way, but in a really complex, thorough, thoughtful way. You meditate on it. I want to kind of keep asking you about the the way you might work with a young person because you you are a life coach, and so I think you probably work with some young people who are questioning their gender and. Um, what I find is that at least at the beginning of the therapy process, when you attempt to dig deeper into the metaphor, let's say you're talking to a young person, you say, explain to me what that means to you to, to have a woman inside, let's say, you know, you're using that language. I find that a lot of young people are not able to articulate anything beyond the kind of scripts they read on yeah, the internet. Absolutely. For lack of, I mean, I know that sounds really reductive. These are not unintelligent kids, but they've, they've immersed themselves in this highly cerebral jargony kind of narrative for so long that they're just, it seems to me at the beginning, at least they're just regurgitating things they've read before. I, I wonder if that's your experience and how, how do you move past that into a deeper place? I've yeah, I found the same thing, and it's it's I'm I'm having to um, learn as I go because I'll ask questions and I'll get these responses that are ten seconds long, and there's something I just another response that I've heard from other people, mm-hmm. and so I have to continually prod and ask more questions and ask more questions and try to make them as open-ended as possible so that I don't get a yes or no. And, and oftentimes I'll say things like, you know, look at me on this, on this straight, this dude, like explain to me what that's like, because I really don't know. I mean, I haven't, I haven't experienced what you have. So, I mean, what's it like? What was it like yesterday? Ask for specifics. Like, and there's specific mm. times when you really, really felt this incongruence, like, 
what was that like? I mean, is it stronger yeah. at school than it is at home? Is it stronger yeah. when people are looking at you? Do you experience it when you're alone? Do you experience it with your when you're alone looking at yourself in the mirror? Um, yeah, that's you know, great. Or I'll bring in things like from my own childhood. It's like, I'll, you know, I'll, you know, you always have to judge whether or not you're you're yeah. sharing too much or too little. What what? But I'll you know I'll say you know. I used to wear a brooch to school and have my hair kind of orange. And, and, you know, I, I bought a dress, but I wore it as a trench coat and I was like a gender bender. It's like, and just share that, you know, just broaden mm. the discussion. And, uh, it, but so much depends. I mean, there's sometimes there's yeah. like this really, really strong, strong pushback. Like, oh, yeah. don't touch me. Like, don't, don't, don't. I mean, there's like, and then other times it's, you know, you can get a lot out of someone mm-hmm. if you just keep talking to them, keep asking questions. And But that's very mm-hmm. like, in my experience, that's very like, um, as a kid, you were told, and I was told many times, like, don't think like that because, you know, honestly, the devil will get in your mind there and it, it will bring you to all sorts of places if you follow me. So you can't, like, don't meet the devil halfway. You can't go down those roads. And that's very the same. I think an awful lot of children have are teenage kids. They've been kind of indoctrinated. Don't think like that because that's just your inner transphobia coming out and it'll get you. It'll get you. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Mm. So, so, you know, one of the things that I've done with that is, you know, when someone talks to me about internalized transphobia, is I start to like talk about that as, okay, well, that's kind of like a voice in your head, right? And, you know, I'll, I'll confess, well, I have voices in my head too. I mean, I, I have thoughts that kind of come to me and they don't, I don't really agree with them, but I'm having them. So what is that? And so I start talking about techniques like what Jung called active imagination, where you just decide to have a dialogue with yourself, like two different aspects of yourself and like, okay, what is this, what does this transphobic voice say? How can you respond to it? Well, then how does it respond when it, after Mm. you've just said that and like get a dialogue going. And then it's important to really say that, you know, you're agnostic about, about what happens in that dialogue. Cause it's important that the dialogue between these two parts of the person really be um, authentically theirs. And I just, you know, I, I really like that. And when I encounter that, I try, I try to say, you know, a principle in, in my therapy work is that all your thoughts and feelings are allowed here. Yeah. You know, if you are, if you have a thought that pops up, let's not rush to label it. Let's just be curious about it. And it can't hurt you, you know, like whatever we think and feel is a natural part of who you are. And, and I also, I mean, I keep thinking about your, your discussion of literal versus true, uh, metaphorically true versus literally yeah. true. And, uh, you know, we talked about the, the metaphor of what it might mean to, let's say, to say to somebody that you're a woman. But I'm also thinking about this other metaphor that um, when you talked about what the transphobia sounds like or what the dysphoria feels like, I think sometimes these words offer a stand in for other things. So, for example, the dysphoria sometimes in my experience is like, actually, that's being embarrassed and mortified, right? Like, or being really tired and stressed. Sometimes they call that dysphoria. And when you really pick it, unpick it and ask a lot of questions about it, you know, as, as the clinician with a hypothesis, you think, oh, she's talking about when she feels left out and everyone's staring at her and she's embarrassed. Lonely. And so, um. Yeah. And and sometimes I think the metaphor is I'm not who you think I am. Exactly. I was just, I was thinking that as you said it, it's, I I will define myself. I am not who I've been told I am. And that's another, that's another place where people can, can really a therapist or a coach should be able to really um, perceive and even encourage that because we do all need to say, look at, I'm not who you told me I am. Cause that's true. I mean, all of yeah. us have been misdefined and given labels that aren't appropriate. And it's a huge part of adolescence just saying, I'm not who you said I was. 
Um, yeah. I am my own person. And it's also something that for parents to keep in mind that their kids aren't exactly who they thought they were and they shouldn't be. And children yeah. have every right to say, no, I don't, I don't agree with who you think I am. Um, yeah. And the more you allow that, then I think the more kind of aberrant, crazy forms of self-definition kind of they get, they get sloughed off, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, and we ran a parenting retreat recently, Stella and I and Lisa Marciano. And like one of the things we talked about is just that it's very normal for teenagers to radically change the way they present themselves to the world. And a lot of times, you know, there's a variety of different types of ROGD kids. I know there's become this kind of archetype, but really it's a huge variety. And sometimes parents will say, my kid was happy. Everybody like loves her. She was an upbeat, positive kid. I never thought I'd worry about her. And then she kind of just went dark. I mean, in addition to the gender thing, this is a kid who's depressed, like hiding in oversized clothing, sometimes self-harming. And I think, you know, there's something about that, that teenage period of time where you're saying, I am not the innocent, happy person you thought I was. I have dark thoughts too. I can have an existential crisis here. And I don't want to just be the perfect, happy kid that I was five years ago. Like there's something really yeah. important about going through the process. And Absolutely. I think, Brett, you're so right. Like if parents can acknowledge and make space for some of the darker, confusing, scary aspects of teenagehood, maybe the kids won't have to go as dark and as extreme. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So your, your knowledge and study of language and then Jungian um, analysis, does that clue us in about what do you think is going to happen with all this? Like we've radically changed the language around these ideas. Does does studying Jung and the historical context of his work, does it give us any clues as to what might happen? Could I add a question onto that same question? Because I was kind of circling the same point. Like you've studied, let's say, post-structuralism and you've studied the deconstruction of, of, of everything here. And I'm wondering, so is there a new movement coming up? Is there new movements coming up like backlashes to all this? Or are we still right in the middle of this, mm. this movement as such? <laughs> sure, sure. There are, there are new. Yeah. yeah, this is a very <laughs> godlike, godlike predictability. You're Go omnipotent on, now, Brett. You tell us what's happening. <laughs> yeah, I mean, throw me a couple of softballs, guys. I mean, come on. Um, you know, uh, I'll address um, uh, Sasha's and then Stella's question. Um, this makes me think a lot of what Jungians would call the archetype of the apocalypse. Now, the apocalypse, from one perspective, is the end of everything, right? But let's keep uh, keep in mind that that apocalypse can have a metaphorical or, let's say, a, a, another type of, of of significance. So, in a sense, it might be that there's a whole worldview and set of assumptions that are coming to an end or being called into question. Um, But the word apocalypse also means revelation. So it it can be the revelation of something new that's coming, right? We're kind of back in the same death rebirth imagery, Mm. um, but maybe at a broader cultural level. So, I mean, I think for me, it's pretty clear that, you know, the gender identity theory and queer theory it's not sustainable. I mean, there's just too many internal contradictions. I don't think it's sustainable. And if it were to sustain itself, it, it would only sustain itself through us like coming to an end. I mean, it's just like, it just doesn't work. Right. Um, so there's that. And, uh, you know, what, what is going to be born out of the ashes? I, I, I don't know, but, um, I, I'm a fan of what's called eco-psychology, and I really like, for example, um, looking at things through an evolutionary lens. Um, and I think it's really, I think there are there is some pushback to some of this thinking from that area, right? Where people are looking at humans as, as animals and acknowledging that animals have 
have psyches. If, 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 if anything has a psyche, if we have psyches, animals have psyches and there are a lot of similarities and we're, it's, it's a, there's a whole approach that's kind of bringing us back to nature, to the ground, to, to a, an evolutionary perspective. Um, I think, and I think that's, that's super useful and helpful. And, you know, in some way we have to acknowledge that, that, that we're just, we're just animals and we're not like homo linguisticus, you know, we're not just like <laughs> a set of linguistic propositions. We're like these, you know, physical bodies and, um, speak for yourself, you know, Brett. Yeah. <laughs> I really like that. Um, you know when Sasha asked you where yeah, that's amazing. When uh, Sasha asked you earlier about an example of post structuralism and then later on while while we had this fascinating conversation, you said gender assigned at birth. Is that that kind of lit a fire in you when you first heard it? Is that a very good example of post structuralist yeah. thought? Yeah. I just want to make sure I'm I'm kind of understanding you. I, I think it's it's I think it's definitely it's a, it's an like an echo of that. Mm-hmm. Um, just because there's the, the flip, the the way they flip the script on language is it's not reflecting that something that's pre-existing. Language is something that you assign to that, right? Mm-hmm. It's like you know, I don't know. Maybe take something like color. Now, in different languages, they have different words for colors right and yeah. so there's a sense in which actually we we are attributing to the world a, a, a mm. set of categories that mm-hmm. aren't exactly there now from mm-hmm. another perspective they certainly are there because we can all distinguish you know mm-hmm. we can make the same distinctions but mm-hmm. we certainly call them different things mm-hmm. this you're is so kind right of, that's a perfect yeah. example i had never oh. thought about it that way you're so right Very especially yeah. because colors are gradient and they can exist on a spectrum and like reddish yeah. orange versus like yellowish orange are slightly different just like yeah. how intersex people you know like oh, the, yeah. the, it's so used by the by the theorists in a similar way that's an amazing example you know, if you know more than one language, you know that, I mean, you do really enter into a different mindset. Yeah. And when yeah. you get really fluent in that language, you start to perceive things differently. And yeah. you know that people do kind of divvy up the world yeah. differently. They have different distinctions that they focus on. So that's yeah. kind of a, you know, that's an argument for this sort of understanding of languages construct. But you also know that, I mean, we can translate languages, Right. So we can get something of the sense that transfers yeah. from one to another. The differences aren't absolute. And people who mm. know English can also learn Chinese and vice versa. And, mm. and translations actually work the, very well. Yeah. So that, that it does work as a concept. Yeah. Just before we finish. and uh, But not always. I mean, yeah, it's no, interesting because yeah. it's not, not, yeah. not 100%. Yeah. It's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just before we finish... Um, You know, uh, you're a doctor of psychology, I think, and you're a life coach. And I've always wanted to ask you, as were Twitter mutuals, you're like the thinking man's life coach. And did you make a specific, I know this isn't anything to do, but I've always wanted to ask you, did you make a specific decision to become a life coach as opposed to, let's say, a therapist? Or I presume with your qualifications, you could have become anything. Well, when I started going to school at the Pacifica Graduate Institute, which is in Santa Barbara, I was actually living in Mexico, um, which means that, and the classes there were only once a month, like four day, three or four day intensive. So I had to like literally travel all the way there. Right. And that sort of in part determined whether or not I was going to get a, a, a clinical degree or not. So basically I have this nice fancy PhD in psychology but it's not a clinical degree. So I didn't really learn a lot of the ins and outs of being a therapist. And so, you know, I have a lot of smart things to say about psychology and philosophy, but I don't necessarily have that particular training. So, so I can't really call myself a therapist. Um, so I call myself a life coach. I'm just really upfront with my clients. I'm a life coach. Um, I have a PhD in psychology, so I think I know a lot of things. Um, but it gives me also a lot of freedom because you know it I don't does. have to I don't have to affirm you know yeah. I can 
And as uh, long as I'm up front, I, I think I'm, yeah. I, I noted that and I thought, isn't that really interesting? And doesn't that give you a lot of freedom? I, I thought that to myself and I, I'm kind of thrilled that it does. I'm thrilled that there are there's more than one yeah. way to to be part of a kind of uh, a world where you can provide support to other people. There's there's more than one way to do it, and I, I'm really I really like the way yeah, you come and, out. Yeah, and and just to kind of let our listeners know, um, Brett is on the Ghetto website. He's part of the Ghetto organization, and so we have decided that as long as individuals on GETA list their, their credentials and are upfront about them, we don't have any particular distinctions between, oh, only people who are licensed therapists can be part of GETA or only psychologists can be part of GETA. So we, we really think people in the helping professionals are a broad and diverse group, and we welcome people with a, like a, a variety of different backgrounds. So, um, yeah, that's really interesting. It's interesting how... That language, just that label <laughs> changes what you can and can't do in terms of like that pressure to yeah. affirm that yeah. all of these licensed therapists feel right now. It's just really interesting. It's fascinating. And all we're doing is really talking to people. And if you're doing if you're doing therapy in the right way and if you're doing life coaching in the right way, you're just you're asking a lot of really open ended questions. You're reflecting yeah. back what you hear. And then you're followed up with some more really open-ended yeah. questions. I mean, a lot of the, at the level of technique, it's all very, very similar. Yeah, um, that's right. Yeah. So, you know. Well, thank you so much, Brett. We were really glad to have you on. It was a real pleasure. This was so much fun. I was nervous before coming on, but it was just <laughs> like fun. <laughs> oh, don't be. <laughs> it, was, it was really, really interesting. Thank anyway. you so much. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. This podcast is sponsored by Rhyme and Genspect, and listener support means a lot to us. The best way to help is to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Follow us on social media, and if you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts of the show, special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash widerlenspod. Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services. 